there and welcome to the Let's Talk podcast. I'm Carrie Lloyd-Shaw, Christian blogger, wife and mum, muser and grace lover. I write and chat about a broad range of biblical subjects deeply rooted in and flowing from this focus centre that one man died for everyone. I believe that it's this truth about Jesus that makes our hope as Christians visible to others as part of a collective worldwide community of faith, the Church of Jesus Christ. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram, and if you're a word nerd like me, you can check out my latest blog articles by heading on over to the website, carrylloydshaw.com. Right now though, let's talk. This episode is dedicated to the memory of William Tyndale, who lived between 1490 and 1536. William was an active and passionate Christian writer and translator whose historical influence on the translation of the Bible into English cannot be overstated. Tyndale was convinced that the Bible alone should determine the practices and doctrines of the church and that every believer should be able to read the Bible in his own language. The Church of Christ is the multitude of all those who have believed in Christ for the remission of sins and who are thankful for that mercy and who love the law of God purely and who hate the sin in this world and long for the world to come. Church people are kingdom people, living in a fellowship under King Jesus, with lives that are literally connected to things before the creation of the world and extending far into eternity. By looking more closely at how the Bible describes the church, we will also see what the advancement of this kingdom of God looks like in reality, demonstrated in the lives of those men and women who gather together as the church. But what does the word church mean? Our English language Bibles were translated from manuscripts written primarily in two languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. The translative history of the Bible is a fascinating journey from an academic and historical perspective and is well worth exploring. In the New Testament, the word translated into English as church is not actually a translation or even a transliteration of the original Greek word. The translators of the first English language Bibles generally elected to use the English word church, which had emerged first as the word kirk and finally evolved through the centuries into the word church as an English equivalent of the original Greek word. The first usage of this word church in English was as a building in which religious meetings were held but eventually it became used for the people in the building too. By the time translators began translating the Greek manuscripts into English, it had already been in accepted use in English for a long time. In all truthfulness, however, it wasn't an accurate translation of ecclesia, which is the original Greek word. The original Greek word used in the New Testament, ecclesia, is a compound of ek, meaning out of, and klesis, meaning calling, a derivation of kaleo, meaning to call. A literal meaning would be a calling out or the called out. An ecclesia was originally a select civil body summoned or convoked for a particular purpose and the word in and of itself didn't have any religious meaning attached. In Acts, the word ecclesia is used of a riotous mob and also used to refer to a lawful gathering and you can find this in Acts 19 verses 32, 39, and 41. Ecclesia should perhaps be more accurately translated in English as assembly or congregation. 
However, the King James Version, the authorised and most commonly read translation for many years, renders it church some 76 times, churches 36 times, and assembly three times. Most other translations follow the King James's example. Essentially, the translators chose to replace ecclesia for another Greek word, kyriakon, which by this time had already made its way into English as church. Despite this, it would be true to say that the word church is now an extremely established and recognisable word in our modern English, and it has been used for centuries as the English equivalent of ecclesia, however erroneous the original translative methods were. But what does church really mean? Today, most people would understand the word church to mean one or all of three things. Firstly, a place of worship. This is the original meaning of the word kuriakon, which means belonging to the Lord. Secondly, a particular denomination or religious group within Christianity. This is when it is attached to a name, for example, an Anglican church. And thirdly, a body of Christian believers, the church. The primary goal when trying to understand the use of the word ecclesia in the context of the Bible's original meaning is not necessarily to reinstate a truthfully accurate translation of the original word, although that would of course be a more proper process of translation, but to correctly understand the meaning of the original word. We know that words change meaning over time and also that it's not the word itself that is important, but how we understand and use the word. Do we talk about and describe the church in the same way today that the first century authors did? For the sake of continuity, we will discuss the biblical meaning of Ecclesia in this episode using the established English equivalent, church. The Bible never speaks of the church in the sense of a building or organisation. Neither does it speak of the church in the sense of a particular denomination. The biblical definition of church is actually about the people those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. These people are the global community of believers who gather together in local expressions of church. The Apostle Paul describes this community like the human body, a living thing, made up of real people. The New Testament authors don't describe many churches but one, simply expressing that where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is among them. In the early years of the church, these gatherings were known, for example, as the church that met at Corinth, or the church at Ephesus, communities acknowledged to be the one body of the Lord scattered abroad. The church is about people. The people are the church, the ecclesia, called out, connected in relationship by Jesus Christ and assembled together for a purpose. There's a very real sense that many Christians are returning to this original meaning behind the word used by the New Testament writers, that is, to view and speak of the church as an organic identity, made up of people who are called and gathered together as a community in Jesus. In the first few chapters of Acts, we read of the birth of the church in a rush of wind and fire, a pivotal moment in history where people began responding to the call of the gospel and the announcement of Jesus as the risen King and Saviour. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 verses 14 to 36 cut many of the listeners to the heart, and his life-changing teaching regarding Jesus caused many to receive his words with gladness, believing that Jesus was both the risen Lord and Christ. This belief and repentance of their sin was demonstrated by them being baptised, 3,000 people in one day. 
Acts 2 verses 42 to 47 describes how these individuals began gathering themselves together as a community, called out to follow and serve King Jesus. We begin to get a sense of the reason for the use of the word ecclesia by the apostolic writers to describe the formation and purpose of this one body of believers. Throughout Acts, there are examples of the believers meeting together as a community, and the purpose of these gatherings can generally be summarized by five key elements. To honor God and his Son through worship. To grow in community through fellowship. To develop personally through discipleship. To provide service to others through ministry. And to share the good news through evangelism. Being called out is a common theme throughout the New Testament. Jesus came to call sinners, Romans 8 verse 30. By God's grace and mercy, God calls people from among Jews and Gentiles to be his people, Romans 9 verses 24 to 26. The believers in Corinth were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. God calls believers to peace, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. The believers in Galatia were called to freedom, Paul implored the saints at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. God calls believers into his own kingdom and glory, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, and calls them to conduct their lives in holiness, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7. He calls believers out of darkness and into his marvellous light. All these passages cite the original word kaleo, which means to call or called, and have to do with a believer's relationship with God and their connection to his eternal purpose. We can also see the connection here with the use of the Greek word ecclesia to describe the collective community of called-out people. Other metaphors are used throughout the Bible to describe the community of believers, one of which is that believers form a spiritual house, living stones to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Another metaphor is the human body, a living thing made up of real people. This metaphor of a body is further expanded as yet another metaphor, that of a particular kind of body, the body of a bride, the fiancé and intended wife of the Lamb. We are given to understand from Ephesians 5 that the relationship between Jesus and the church wasn't modelled on the first marriage, but in fact it was the other way around. God had the church in mind from the very beginning, and our understanding of marriage is therefore modelled on the relationship that would exist between Jesus and his bride. If we want to understand how the church, as the bride, relates to Jesus, we are to look to marriage and the examples given in both the record of creation in Genesis and Paul's writings in the New Testament. Marriage is our human way of experiencing and understanding how we, together as one body, relate to Jesus as his church. Paul has this to say in Ephesians 5. Wives should always put their husbands first, as the church puts Christ first. A husband should love his wife as much as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. He made the church holy by the power of his word, and he made it pure by washing it with water. Christ did this so he would have a glorious and holy church without faults or spots, or wrinkles, or any other flaws. In the same way, a husband should love his wife as much as he loves himself. A husband who loves his wife shows he loves himself. None of us hate our own bodies. We provide for them and take good care of them just as Christ does for the church, 
because we are each part of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother to get married, and he becomes like one person with his wife. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the Church. We are therefore to think of the Church, this community of believers, as a woman, a woman whose very life and existence was framed by the death and resurrection of a man. Through this man's death and sacrifice she is created, and at his resurrection she becomes a living creature. We see the obvious echo in the story in Genesis of the creation of Eve from Adam's side. We read in Genesis chapter 2 verses 20 to 23 that the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, and the living creatures of the field. But for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. What an eloquent phrase, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam looks at this new creation and exclaims, This is my very own self from my very own body. She is man's counterpart, not merely in feeling and sense, his flesh, but in his solid qualities. We also have another significant phrase, taken out of, echoing the call that goes out in Acts 2. Here in Acts we read of people being taken out of the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light and life, visible proof of the power of the gospel to bring about a new creation. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there would be no church, no new creation, no bride. The insistence of the critical reality of the resurrection of Jesus being connected to the fulfilment of the gospel promise was the firm teaching of the first century apostles, and this remains the solid framework of the existence of the church today. Paul echoes these thoughts in 2 Timothy, where he says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. The woman in Genesis is the man's possession, not in the sense of ownership, but rather in the sense of belonging. She is from him and of him. They belong together and are as one body. Paul comments on this being profound, and that ultimately he is referring to the church's relationship with Jesus. The word used of Eve at her creation is the Hebrew word izir, which is translated as helper in English. However, our understanding of helper falls far short of the original sense of the word, which is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe God as a helper to his people, or of a king to his subjects. The primary idea of the word lies in girding, surrounding, hence defending, or to protect or aid. The counterpart, therefore, to the man is a woman of valour whose worth is incalculable. We have this extraordinary woman of valour fleshed out in more detail in Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31, 
a famous passage celebrating the virtuous woman or wife. We would perhaps understand virtuous to mean having or showing high moral standards, but the original Hebrew words eshet and she'el used in these verses don't convey virtue or virtuousness in the same way we would understand virtuous today. The Hebrew word eshet is the construct form of isha, woman, and she'el denotes bravery as in Psalm 76 verse 5, capability as in Proverbs 12 verse 4, triumph as in Psalm 118 verse 16, or strength as in Psalm 84 verse 7. In the 17th century, when the first English Bibles were translated, virtuous still suggested the French vertu, which at the time meant manly or brave. A better translation of the Hebrew word eshet she'el is woman of valour. This virtuous woman is the same woman who is also in the King James translation clothed in strength and honour. If marriage is modelled on the church and her relationship to Jesus, then it's not such a stretch to recognise the ideal woman in Proverbs as a detailed portrait of what the well-functioning organic body of the church looks like. This is how the woman in Proverbs 31 is described. She obtains wool and flax and she is pleased to work with her hands. She is like the merchant ships, she brings her food from afar. She also gets up while it is still night and provides food for her household and a portion to her female servants. She considers a field and buys it from her own income. She plants a vineyard. She begins her work vigorously and she strengthens her arms. She knows that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out in the night. Her hands take hold of the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes for herself coverlets. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and honour, and she can laugh at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. What a remarkable description of the capable, industrious, joyful reality of the organic church, a living, breathing woman of valour, of which every believer is a member and valued part. The Bible is full of metaphors to describe Christians. In 1 Peter, they are described as stones making up a house. John describes Christians as branches connected to a vine. Christians are also subjects and citizens of a kingdom, and Christians are children of a heavenly father. Christians are all these things, but these are still metaphors for the individual. It's only when we consider marriage as a metaphor of the church and the king being brought together as one that we understand that the Christian life isn't intended to be experienced as individuals, but as a collective community. The church, the woman of valour, is created from the body of Jesus, who was crucified, buried and raised the third day, just as the first woman was taken from the first man. Together, Jesus Christ and the church are one body. She, the church, is the bride of Jesus, and he is the spotless lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. 
The first two chapters of Genesis are where we first discover God's eternal purpose for humanity. The last two chapters of Revelation tell us of the glorious resolution of God's story. And Paul's words in Ephesians assert the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ in all this, together with his counterpart, the Church, which should dominate our understanding of everything physical and spiritual. Frank Viola comments this, Christ did not die just to save us from sins, but to bring us together in community. After coming to Christ, our next step is to be involved in community. A church that does not experience community is a parody, a sham. Simply put, the purpose of the church is to stand for God's eternal purpose. In short, wherever the church gathers together, its guiding and functioning principle is simply to incarnate Christ. Proverbs 31 verse 11 to 12 makes this final commentary of the woman of valour. The heart of her husband has confidence in her and he has no lack of gain. She brings him good and not evil all the days of her life. This episode was dedicated to William Tyndale, and you may be interested to learn more about William Tyndale's work when translating the New Testament from Greek to English. The English language was first spoken as a Germanic dialect, known as Old English or Anglo-Saxon, beginning in Northern England some years after the Anglo-Saxon conquest, which was approximately 449 AD. The earliest written Old English, however, did not appear until approximately 800 AD. Probably sometime around 500 AD, the people in northern England started referring to a building erected for worship as a kerich, and finally a church. By the time William Tyndale translated the New Testament from Greek to English, which was known as the Tyndale Translation in approximately 1525 AD, the word church had been in use for centuries. Throughout these centuries, the state church had maintained its power over the people through bloody crusades against resistance groups for the sake of doctrinal purity. It was claimed that the Apostle Peter had started the church, and therefore the church should be led by a clergy and not placed in the hands of any congregation or assembly. Not only that, prior to the 14th century, a complete Bible in the English language for the common people didn't exist. Even for modestly educated clergy, the Bible was mostly inaccessible, available only in the Latin language and in large folio copies of two or three volumes. These Bibles were ridiculously expensive, limited in number and difficult to access. For the most part, the clergy had to rely on the small portions of scripture that were included in prayer books. In his translation of Matthew 16 verse 18, Tyndale rightly translates the Greek word ecclesia as congregation as opposed to the word church signalling a return to a correct understanding of the organic reality of the church. Tyndale's accurate translation of this one word threatened the power and control of the entire state church system. Knowing Tyndale's translation was soon to become public, to be read by the common people in their own language, presented a real threat to the power of the religious institution of the day. Tyndale was told to amend his translation. Despite being threatened by the religious leaders of his day, William Tyndale would not revoke his translation of the word congregation. Ultimately, he was betrayed, sentenced to death, and burned at the stake in 1536. In 1604, King James of England and Scotland commissioned a new translation in response to perceived problems or flaws with earlier translations which did not conform to the ecclesiology 
and reflect the episcopal structure of the Church of England and its beliefs about an ordained clergy. Instructions were given to the translators that the new version would conform to the ecclesiology of the Church of England, which by now had broken with and was directly in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. As such, certain Greek and Hebrew words were to be translated in a manner that reflected the traditional usage of the Church, now long entrenched and in common use. Ecclesiastical words such as church were to be retained and not to be translated as congregation. The King James Authorised Version was published in 1611 and quickly grew in popularity. It still remains a significant and popular English translation today. Unfortunately, however, the inaccurate use of the word church to replace the original ecclesia became firmly embedded in most translations with many readers unaware of the problematic nature of its translative history. Is it possible to unravel and reverse nearly 500 years of linguistic and cultural understanding that now surrounds the word church? Is it possible to edit and reprint millions upon millions of editions of the Bible in English, which, in truthfulness, used a word that was an inaccurate representation of the original? Should we withdraw every copy of errant English Bibles from circulation, simply because it contains the word church? Is it possible to determine what was genuine translative prerogative or suspect ecclesiastical bias? The answer is clearly no to all these questions. A better solution, perhaps, and one worthy of investing our energy and resources to, is to rediscover the original meaning that the New Testament writers had in mind, the organic reality of a community of believers, and to speak think and believe this of the church today, recognising that wherever the church gathers together that mighty woman of valour, her guiding and functioning principle is simply to incarnate Christ. 